0: Blog Talk Radio, Radio. Guys broadcasting lies
1: with billions of
0: people
2: Camels on the streets
0: tracking who we meet and call this liberty What's you gonna take
2: that listen live tonight, and the folks that are going to listen, uh, uh, download it into the archives later. If you're listening live, you're welcome to call in, 347-308-8790, 347-308-8790. <clears throat> Sam D. will answer the phone, and uh will ask you what you want to do, Now, if you call in, you don't want to talk... Uh, If he opens your line and and asks, you don't worry. He won't be on the air. He'll be doing it off air.
0: Uh,
2: But we appreciate you calling in to add your experiences. Uh, I certainly don't know... uh, uh, I certainly know anywhere near uh, everything on anything I talk about, and I'm always willing... Uh, to listen to other folks' experiences, other folks' advice. That's why I pay for 50 phone lines. So be sure and call in if you have any questions, want to make any comments about any of the stuff that we're talking about tonight or any of the stuff we have in the past or things you want to hear in the future. uh, You're welcome to call in at at any time. There's also a live chat that follows the show. uh, uh, I believe whenever you open up the show (coughs) page, uh, there is a uh, a button to click for live chat. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, a lot of the folks that uh, that help out with the show. Of course, Sam D. Uh, he's, he's every time uh, we open the microphones, Sam is here and uh, and ready to go, ready to uh, screen the calls or. Or take over if uh, if my line gets cut, anything like that, and uh, I really appreciate him doing that. So, Sam, thank you. Uh, and then there's uh, there's a lot of other folks. My my wife would have to be next on the list because uh, she keeps the, uh, the, the, the the rest of the the rest of the crew's noise down to a minimum. And uh, she brings me fresh cups of coffee, and she calls me in the morning to remind me that I have a show tonight, that I don't get carried away uh, with work, and uh, and she loves me, and I love her. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, several things tonight. Last week we were we were talking about uh, purified water. And I also during at during the same time I wanted to t- to talk about <clears throat> <clears throat> sorry. I've been out in the in the hundred and two degree uh uh heat and dust all day. I must have drank uh, probably at least two and a half, three gallons of of liquids, but it still seems like I'm 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 coming up short. Uh And when I say two or three gallons, I'm not uh, uh, exaggerating, and that's probably what I drank. And uh, that can go back to what we discussed uh, last week with water. Uh, When it's hot and you're moving around, you're going to be bleeding water out uh, out of your body everywhere. Uh, You're going to be sweating. It's going to be evaporating out of your eyes. Uh, You're going to every breath you take every every time you exhale whenever you uh, take your your glasses or uh, or you exhale onto a window and it fogs up that's water water vapor that's leaving your body when you breathe <clears throat> so you're leaving you're you're expelling water all day long and uh, the only real way that uh you can kind of tell if you're drinking enough water, is that that you should be having to urinate, and your uh, your urine should be uh, kind of clear. It shouldn't be a uh, you know just a small bit of a dark uh, colored urine. It should be a, you know a steady flow of uh, good clear clear urine. <laughs> make it sound like a, like a beverage, okay? I know a lot of people think that it is. I've seen that on those Survivor shows, guys uh, quaffing down their own urine. I, I don't know. I, I guess if, uh, if it was life or death, I'm sure I'd probably do that too, but uh, I don't practice it, uh, and uh,
0: and I've never been
2: that close to uh, perishing that I had to do that. However, whenever you, you urinate, you should be able to look at it and see that it should be fairly clear, and you should be... You should be drinking enough water that you're having to urinate, right? Because if you if you realize that during the course of the day that you have not had to urinate, that means that you're not taking in enough water uh, to do the job that is supposed to be being done with the water. The water is supposed to be helping keeping your blood uh, flowing because your blood is, is pretty much uh, mainly just water. Uh, and it's flowing through your body, through all the organs. It's helping, it's allowing your blood to flow freely through all the uh, veins and capillaries. And that blood is, as uh, it's moving through there, it's carrying away heat uh, and uh, uh, heat, heat from the muscles. And it's also carrying away uh, the uh, the stuff your body is trying to excrete. You know the uh, the unneeded stuff. So make sure that you're drinking
0: enough, that you're
2: that, that you're urinating, and that the urine is a you know good uh, uh, clear color, not a light not a light flow of dark red. Right, that's a sign that you're not drinking enough. <clears throat> All right, the uh, going back to the water. Uh, we talked a good bit about it, and I, I told folks. Uh, one of the things that you want to make sure you do uh, in your home, especially folks living in the cities and everywhere else, uh, you want to make sure that you're storing enough water. Guys, at least uh, a minimum of uh, three or four days of water. Now, that's one gallon per person uh, just for drinking, one gallon per person per day. And that is with you in uh, 75 degrees in the shade not doing anything. All right? If it's hotter and you're going to have to be doing stuff, it's going to be more. That's just the way it works. But we were talking about it, and uh, I told you that one of the places that you can store water and at the same time uh, improve your your chances of getting through at least a few days a, of a power outage is in your freezer. Your freezer compartment should be packed solid with water containers. They should be filling any voids that are in there uh, in your freezer. There shouldn't be big open chunks of air because your refrigerator has to work harder to cool those open holes of air. And every time you open the door, uh, and sometimes you can actually see this, every time you open the door, you'll see it flow out. You'll see that air come cascading down out of those open shelves, hit the floor and spread out, and that is wasting it. So make sure you have a a stock of, of plastic bottles on hand that you can plug in there Fill all those voids. Then if your power goes out, uh, you'll have solid ice in there that can help get you past, you know, a few days of the power uh, power being out. It can extend the life of the food and stuff in there because if the power goes out and uh, you have a bunch of void in there, if you only have like 50% filled up with stuff, then it's going to... Uh, it's going to reach temperatures which may cause troubles uh pretty quick and you want to be able to uh to extend the 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 life uh uh, lifetime use the the usage of the stuff that you put in the fridge as long as possible uh we talked about uh, boiling water uh we talked about adding uh, chlorine to it and uh uh and several other things.
0: Uh,
2: if you Google uh, water purification, you'll find that there's quite a few methods that folks are uh, are talking about there and giving demonstrations of. You can make your own water filters fairly easily, uh, and you can make it out of uh, out of emergency stuff too. When we talked about the uh the plastic uh, liter bottles and making sure that you are pre-filtering uh your water stuff like that all right uh, okay <coughs> the uh the next thing that i want to talk about is uh fire starting and uh this is a, another of the, the legs, the, of, of the five legs, the five tenets of survival. You have uh, water, food, shelter, energy, and security. These are the five main things that you need to consider. Now, they, they all have subcategories and uh and there are certainly other things you could add into it, but those are the five main things that you're need, going to need to consider uh, for survival situations. And fire starting is going to fall under the heading of energy. Uh, in order for you to cook your food, in order for you to see, uh, in order for you to keep warm, uh, all of these things you are going to require energy. And so you're going to have to create energy. If you don't have uh, a constant uh, flow of electricity, then you're going to need some way to to create the energy. And I'm, and I'm talking about uh, whether you're in your house or you're out on the side of a mountain. It's both the same thing. If you're in your house, you're still going to have to, and the electricity is off, you're still going to have to figure out some way of cooking your food, uh, of maybe uh, lighting the darkness. And certainly if you're out in the outdoors, you're certainly going to have to have some way of doing this. <clears throat> and uh, obviously the first thing that we want to consider, the easiest thing, is having uh, uh, on hand a supply of the uh uh the you know the little uh, inexpensive uh disposable lighters. those are going to be uh, uh probably one of the best things that you can can keep on you to start a fire you can buy them relatively cheap uh i've been buying them in bulk for quite a while now because uh I don't know if you guys remember the uh, the uh, the two guys, uh, one guy in Argentina, uh, Ferfahl, and then Soko from uh, the Balkans. And they they both spoke about this, but mainly uh, Soko was talking about the fact that you know once the the utilities had ended, uh, it means you couldn't turn the knob. On the stove to get the electricity in there, uh or you once you ran out of gas, that would you know be propane cooking gas once you ran out of the gas there's no uh, there's no more uh people had to cook on wood fires on charcoal stuff like that, and they had to light it, and we don't think about this much because we can if we need a... Uh, when you get a light on fire, we just go and grab some matches that we keep on hand or we, we go and grab some of the lighters that we have. But eventually, matches all get burned up and the lighters run out of gas. And uh, the same thing can happen to you, uh, even if you have lighters. The lighters can malfunction. It can go dead. Uh, you know, if you spend any, any time clicking lighters, you know that they... Um, they can fall apart and become unusual, <clears throat> but uh, that is the first thing that uh, I would make sure that I had that I kept in the home and uh, in my go bag, in my rucksack, in my car glove boxes, <clears throat> uh, in the drawers of any of the places that I stayed on a regular basis, and uh, that's the, the lighters. Was also talking about how the lighters became uh, a very much in demand item of barter. You know, people needed the lighters to uh, to do everything they were going to do th- with energy, so they would they would consider the lighters to be a, a really big uh, value bartering item. Uh, some of the folks even developed uh, businesses where they could refill the Disposable lighters for you. The disposable, even the disposable lighters, usually have a little filling plug on the bottom. And uh, some of the, uh, the local craftsmen had figured out how to uh, to generate uh, methane, compress it, and then fill the lighters with it. Or some, you know, or they they had some stash of uh, propane or pain, something, but they were. Uh, they had a pretty good business going where they're refilling the lighters for folks.
0: Uh,
2: so make sure that you have the lighters on hand. I don't know if the price if they've changed all around the nation, but uh, for a couple of years, you could go to places like Dollar General, and you could buy ten lighters for. $2.50. They came out to about $20,000 a piece, And I just put that on my list of things to purchase. When I went up to the dollar general, like once a week, I would uh, allocate uh, like 10 bucks that I could spend on stuff on my list, either for barter or survival, stuff like that. And uh, I would purchase, uh, you know, once a week I'd purchase a 10-pack now they've gone down in the number of lighters that they're going to give you for that $2.50. Now it's five lighters for $2.50. So they've gone up to $0.50 apiece. <clears throat> but still, uh, if you put that on your budget, uh, you know, once or twice a week, uh, you can rapidly develop, uh, you know, a good stock of lighters. saying thing would be matches and uh, certainly matches are inexpensive now. They used to have the Strike Anywhere matches, and I guess after a while they uh, they became alarmed at the uh, at the fact that the white tips uh, could be taken off the Strike Anywhere and <clears throat> used as uh, an explosive item, I think. And uh, so now... Uh, very hard to find any of the old uh, Strike Anywhere's with the picric uh, acid tips. You can uh, still, however, buy the uh, the boxes with the large uh, amount of uh, of big wooden matches. You can buy them really pretty cheaply and, uh, at any of the places like Walmart or H E B stuff like that. You, know, you can buy those big boxes of uh, diamond uh, matches. <clears throat> I would advise stocking up on those as well. And uh, the matches are going to come in a wooden—I mean—in a, a cardboard box. And uh, one of the things I would certainly do with those is, is when you're now I put everything in zip just because it's easier to keep track of. I put them in the zip I write uh, on the outside with a uh, black uh, sharpie. What's in it? How many? when I put it in there. Uh, but I would put the matches, I'd make sure I put them in a, a nice, tight Ziploc bag. And go ahead and pay a little bit extra for your Ziplocs and get the really good, the high-quality storage Ziplocs. Not, uh, not the real thin plastic ones. We get the high-quality storage ones. And then you can also... Uh, hop on to eBay and buy yourself a pound or two of the desiccants off of uh, eBay. You know the little uh, desiccant packs that you you find in all the different uh, uh, products. You can buy a pound or two of those on the on eBay fairly inexpensively, and get in the habit of saving the ones that come to you in. Uh,
0: in any of the
2: other uh products that you purchase you know if you if you buy some uh device or something that has a a desiccant pack in it save it get yourself a a mason jar uh, any kind of glass jar thing with a good tight fitting seal and uh throw them in there so that you can use them uh, later on for stuff like this take the uh the wooden match boxes, put them in the Ziploc bag, throw one of the desk kit uh, packages in there, and seal it up nice and tight, and make sure that uh, the matches don't soak up moisture, and put them away wherever you're going to put them away. Those are can also be good uh, barter devices. Now, uh, a lot of people, you know, whenever you talk about matches or lighters for them starting fires, you get almost the same... uh uh, uh arguments with uh that you do when you start asking people about uh uh firearms, you know, which ones uh which is the best one to use. <clears throat> so uh and everyone will have their opinions. And both are good. I like uh, matches when starting fires because uh it's got the it's got the wood going there itself. Uh it's going to uh, burn for uh, a good amount of time, and uh, and usually I can keep my fingers kind of far away from uh, where I'm trying to start the fire. <clears throat>
0: but you can use either
2: one. Uh, so you've got the butane uh, lighters, you've got the matches, uh, and like I said, be sure and put them uh, put them away in a uh, in a, in a in a very dry Container. Uh, I've also got matches that I store in glass jars, and uh, for the for those, I'll just take I'll, a lot of times I'll take the matches out of the the wooden boxes. I'll uh, put them into the glass jars uh, with a jar laying on its side until I fill it out and I'll put two or three layers layers in there, which instead of being all uh, mixed together, jumbled up, I'll just make sure they all go into the jar in the right uh, you know, standing up, I'll pack it full, and I'll cut the Strike Anywhere tabs off of the containers. Uh, there's usually uh, a large strip all the way down one side on or, or both sides of the box. I'll cut those out for those in there, too. And, uh, and I'll store matches that way. Uh, they uh, They used to make... I haven't seen it in quite a while, but they used to make the match uh the dry lock match containers and uh with those you could put uh oh two three uh maybe even uh four dozen kitchen matches uh in there, and with the uh, with the heads up, the container was kind of shaped almost like a vase. So you could put uh, put them all in there, and you could screw on a watertight uh, lid. I still I still have a couple of those, and I still use those. Uh, if for nothing else, uh, I like using the wooden matches. Uh, if I happen to come across a cigar uh, on at my end of the world travels, I'll have something to light it with. <clears throat> uh, if you have neither of those, what are you going to do? How are you going to how are you going to figure it out? How are you going to fix it? <clears throat> well, Uh there's a number of ways that you can start fires without matches uh or a lighter.
0: And uh, I'm
2: sure that everybody has seen uh, the uh the stick method, the bow and stick method.
0: And uh
2: that is certainly uh, a, a viable option. Uh, it can be done. People do it all the time. However, I'll warn you that <clears throat> uh, the time to learn, build, and use uh, a bow drill or any kind of a friction device is not going to be when you are stranded someplace and uh, and it's dark and cold, uh, the time to learn how to start a fire with a friction device, with a bow drill or anything like that, is going to be now uh, when you don't, uh, when you're not depending on it. And uh, before we go any further with the the different methods, let's start off right, uh, let's start off with talking about building your fire building the nest. That's got to be the first thing that you do, no matter what method you're using. You're going to have to build a nest, uh, to incubate that fire. And that's whether you're, whether you're using, uh, a, a lighter matches, uh, uh, sparks. I mean, uh, uh flint and steel, uh, magnifying glass uh, uh hand drill any of these i mean a bow drill, any of these methods it's going to require that you lay your fire correctly first. <clears throat> this is one of the problems that that I always see when folks are trying to start fires <clears throat> is that they they fail to understand like the dynamics of a of a fire and they fail to lay it properly. Listen, you can get a fire started in almost any weather, any condition, if you have laid your fire correctly. And uh, that begins with building a tinder nest. Now, when I talk about building a tinder nest, uh, when you lay a fire, you're going to start with the very smallest, uh, the smallest, particles of combustionable material that you can get and work up from there. Uh, and what you're going to use is going to depend on where you are. It's going to depend on what is the local uh, vegetation consists of. Uh, one of the things you're almost always likely to see is some type of grass. And uh, if you're at like, in a prairie environment, that's great because there are a lot of grasses that will work well for you uh, in in any kind of a a prairie-type environment. And what you want to do is you want to look at the the grasses, and you want to start selecting the pieces of the grasses that are long dead and uh, and are dried out. So what you'll do is, and listen, sometimes it takes a little while to gather up all this stuff to lay your fire correctly, but... But it's very important laying your fire is the most important part of this whole thing, no matter what method you're using. whether you're going to get a fire or not is going to depend on how well you laid your fire beforehand okay so you're going to take uh you're going to take the time to do it right. you're going to first gather your tinder. You can do that by collecting the the dead grass, uh this dead crispy, crunchy grass. Uh, even if you have to pop it off like one uh, one shard at a time uh, you can use dried leaves you can use uh the dried out fibers from uh like seed pods or uh uh you can use uh bark uh, especially like uh cedar bark is really good any kind of bark that uh that uh, that has long strips in it uh is great. And then what you'll do is you'll take the the tinder that you have gathered up and you'll run it back and forth in your hand. Uh kind of like uh like you're rubbing your two hands together uh like you would to produce friction. And you're doing that to further break down the fibers in that timber in that tinder and uh, make the particles of tinder smaller uh you know theoretically what you'd like is to have uh nothing in your pile of tinder that was uh that was bigger around than maybe a, a fourth uh of a pencil lead in thickness or smaller all right if you can get uh if you can uh, crumble your tinder down to where uh, the pieces of kinder are uh, are about the size of what you get when you've got a, a bundle of uh, 9 or 10 hairs together, that's going to be great. That's going to be a, a good size for you. Uh, but, but break it down by rubbing it, by crunching it up, to get the smallest uh, number of particles that you can get. Now when you're doing this, uh, if you can do it over a flat rock or if you can get a big leaf to do it, so that as you're crumbling it up, the pieces that are falling out of your hand are going into a pile that you can uh, you can scrape back up together <clears throat> into a good pile as part of your tenderness.
0: You can use uh,
2: uh, threads from your clothing. If you have uh, some clothing that's getting kind of uh, has exposed threads, you can unravel threads. You can use those as part of your tinder as long as it's uh, a natural fiber, you know, wool, cotton, something like that. Nylons not going to do any good. Uh, so you're looking to make to lay the tinder first. Once you've got a good pile of tinder, and I'd say that would be, uh, well, probably uh, what you can keep in cups in one hand, uh, that's like a minimum amount that you want. Now, once you have the tinder also need to make sure, to be careful with what you do with it. You don't want to just uh dump it so that it spreads apart and and there's space in between it. It needs to be kept in a nice tight ball now however you can do that uh I'll take it and I'll put it in the, a you know on a piece of bark that can hold it in one pile uh I'll put it into a, a you know a crumpled up piece of paper uh into a, a dry leaf, anything that you can do to keep that tender together. That's what you want to do. Uh, birds' nests usually have a, a good amount of tender material in them, if you can get to them, because the birds will uh, you know, will make their nests in a dry place usually, uh, and they will uh, use all different kinds of dried uh, vegetation and then it'll just get drier as it's there in the nest. Uh, You can use that as your tinder. And uh, there's plenty of times when I've uh, I've been able to take take a bird's nest uh, out of a tree. Now there's no birds or eggs in it. But I've taken a bird's nest out of a tree, and and I didn't have to do anything because it was already the perfect tinder pocket for me to start striking into. All right, once you've got your tinder, uh you're going to go to the next size and this is these would be sizes of twigs that are going to be uh like maybe pencil lead or thinner thicknesses. You're going to gather up uh you know a handful of those that will be the next cover that will go on top of the tinder that uh, that you made for grass up. You'll start getting sticks that are twice uh, as thick as the pencil lead. And then you'll get six that or twice as thick as those. So just slowly progress while you're building your, your while you're laying the fire. You'll slowly progress uh, with the size that you're making that you have available. Now you're not going to pile everything up into a big pile at first. Uh, you can in some cases. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I would recommend just using your tinder and the first two thicknesses of twigs that you're going to use to get the fire started. That means that you'll make your little tinder cup, you'll set it there, and then you'll make it so that you can strike into it, you can put the match into it, you can put the glowing ember from the, uh, the bow drill set into it. You have enough room to do that. And then the smaller twigs can be right on top. Now... Uh, I've seen other folks make. Uh, oh, I don't know what they called it now, but it was like a. Uh, it's like kind of the same thing, but they were using
0: uh,
2: like a piece of uh, birch bark to hold it in place, and uh, they were using that to you know the birch bark rolled around the tinder, so they could strike down. They could strike into down into the tinder and that rolled up piece of birch bark. <clears throat> <clears throat> Whatever the case, <clears throat> you don't want to smother your fire out, and you don't want to go from tinder, from your tinder to sticks that are the size of your finger. It's just not—it's not, not going to make that jump. You're you're gradually you're leading the fire uh, from one size to the next to the next, and believe me, the fire fire wants to be, it wants to become. So uh, it, it it wants to help you. It wants to burn. So as long as you don't make it too hard, uh, the fire's going to do, it's going to do its thing, man. So what you want to do is to make a nice, easy path for it to follow. Alright, so once you've got your tinder set up, and you have your supply of twigs, because so that's the other thing, you don't want to you don't want to, to strike your fire into the tinder, and then have it starting to glow and say, "Okay, now I have got to round up some sticks," because your tinder could uh, very well burn itself out before it gets before it before you can find enough stuff for it to burn next of the right size, right? So have everything prepped and ready before you start on the actual making of the the ember. <clears throat> okay, so you're not you don't have a lighter you don't have matches. uh what's next
0: uh,
2: I went on eBay and I bought a handful of the uh, uh the striker uh steels for making uh, uh for making fire uh you can get those uh really pretty cheaply uh from uh, uh on eBay like i said i bought uh i don't know how many it was uh eight or ten of them, uh for uh, uh it couldn't have been more than about uh i think fifteen dollars or so
0: <clears throat> and
2: uh, the way those work is you just take the the bar we'll take these the uh bar and use either the striker the metal striker that they provide with it or you can use uh the back of your pocket knife you could use a key you can use any kind of uh sharp edge metal and you'll you'll run it down the side of it <clears throat> this will create uh, a shower of sparks it will be it'll actually be uh scraping off part of the core and then those parts are ignited due to the friction as they come off and they'll burn for just uh, a fraction of a second, usually. But they'll burn really hot, and uh, and they will get they will ignite the tinder that you have put up there, uh, usually very easily. And I already said I'm going to say it again here, though. That if I were you, I would make it a game.
0: Uh, I
2: would make it a game to to start my fires uh, wherever I was starting them with uh, different methods of fire starting than matches or lighters. I'd make it a game to do it. If I ever needed to light a fire, yeah, even if you're going to light the fire uh, for your dinner, for the charcoal grill, all right, you can clear some of the charcoal away and you can put the... Uh, your uh, tinder down there up against the uh, the briquettes and you can use your flint and steel uh to get uh the fire started as part of uh as part of your your training because you'll you'll learn the easiest ways to do it you'll learn what works and what doesn't work uh, in an environment in a situation that isn't uh, completely compounded by stress uh, and is not a life-or-death situation, all right? So practice laying and starting your fires now so that you'll know how to do it when you need to and you won't be as stressed out doing it. One of the other things you can also use if you're using, if you want to prepare, pre-prepare some, uh, some tinder material, or things like char cloth. Uh, that's where you've taken, uh, uh, like a piece of cotton cloth, and you have you have charred it. You've you've set it on fire, but you put the fire out before it consumed uh, the fabric. And what that does is now that now allows uh, like a, a bed for the uh the spark to uh to land on and catch uh and catch the cloth uh, uh with a you know, with one of the sparks for a glowing ember all right so <clears throat> excuse me so be sure and practice these methods beforehand. Um, what I do now is I'll just use uh, one of probably six or seven different methods. Uh, the only one I don't do all the time is the bow drill, uh, but I've done it enough to know how I could, how to do it. Uh, Flint and steel are the thing that I usually use the most, and I, 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 and that's because I've I've got those stashed everywhere now. Uh, <clears throat> So let's uh let's go ahead and uh, go to the uh, hold on just a second. Uh, let's go ahead and let's go to the uh the bow drill since that's what everybody uh everybody thinks of when they when they think about, uh, starting a fire, uh, because, uh, if you watch people do it in, uh, in, on TV and stuff like that, uh, what you don't see is how long it takes them to do it, uh, usually <laughs> I'll them getting it set up and, uh, like starting to spin it or something. And, uh, and then they'll cut out the next, uh, uh, one, two, three hours of cursing and, and blisters and everything else.
0: Uh,
2: so how are you going to do the bow drill? Uh, the, uh, you can use just your, just a, uh, a drill, which it would be a stick and then, uh. Uh, another piece of wood that you would put it into uh, and use your hand, spinning your hand back and forth on the rod, uh, and you're going to do it, you're going to hold it uh, not tight, because you hold it real tight, your arms are going to tire tired out really quick, and those blisters are going to come a lot quicker than they need to come. You're probably going to get blisters uh, doing it in some cases if so you perfected it. But uh, you can certainly you can certainly learn to do it in a way that doesn't cause some blisters right at first. What you're gonna need <clears throat> is really your your uh the stick, the spindle and the fireboard, uh both need to be a dry, soft wood. Uh that's things like uh, uh aspen and uh juniper uh, cottonwood, willow, uh, some type of a of a soft wood that is very dry. Uh, but now you 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 can use you could possibly use a uh, uh, a spindle. That's the stick. Uh, you could use something that's made from maybe a little bit of a harder wood, as long as you made sure that one of the the pieces was from a soft wood. From, Preferably, like the fireboard uh, and uh the you're going to need to spin it at a pretty decent speed for you to keep up the friction to get the ember started now the the friction of the spindle, you know moving it back and forth against the indentation in the fireboard, it starts to grind small particles uh, off of both the surfaces. Let's talk about the, the what the end of the spindle and the fireboard now, because what you need to do is they, they need to match up kind of as closely as you can make them match up. You want to have an indentation in the fireboard. <clears throat> Carve it out. You can, uh, uh, you know, take a rock of the... Of kind of the right size and and you know kind of gouge out the hole a bit. Uh, if you've got flint there, you can actually do like a, uh, like crow Magnum man and and chip you out to a little uh, kind of like a little knife the size of the notch that you want made, and then uh, use that to to create your indentation. And the indentation. Uh, you should put it close enough to the edge of your fireboard that you can make, uh, with your knife, you can make a little uh, V-cut that is going to intersect the edge of the indentation. That's because whenever you start spinning it up, you start spinning the spindle against the notch in the fireboard, Uh, you're going to have little particles from both of the surfaces which are going to be... In contact with each other under friction, under pressure and friction, and the end where, where, where the two things are meeting up actually needs to get uh, uh, it needs to get uh, pretty hot before the glowing coal will form. But it, you also need a way for that uh, ember to get out of there, and you can do that by having a small uh, Having a small V that intersects the very edge of your notch hole, and then you're going to take your hands. You're going to move them uh, back and forth. You'll be holding the spindle like you're like you're praying, like when you're you're on your knees praying. You're going to apply downward pressure as you are moving your hands back and forth, and then you're going to very rapidly get them back up the top and repeat up to the top and repeat you're going to keep doing this until you can finally start to, you'll see some smoke coming at first you'll see some smoke coming along before you you ever get an ember <clears throat> but uh, the end of the spindle tip will glow, end up glowing red and you'll have an ember And you'll tap the fireboard where you have the, the ember from the tube, it should be loose in there a little balled up uh, piece of into an ember and then you'll take and tap that and drop that into your tinder ball that you've made then you'll take your hands you'll cup that tinder ball, not so that it squeezes it but until you can get as many little uh, particles of the tinder to come into contact with it uh, as you can now not completely completely closing around it, because you need to have one uh, one piece of the tinder exposed, because you're going to continue to blow on that, and you're blowing on it while you're putting it into contact with the tinder ball, and then your, your tinder ball should grow in size as you're gently blowing on it, until you finally get enough of the tinder in your tinder ball blowing, that uh, you actually get a an open flame to break out, okay? And then you can put your... start building it up from the next sizes, you know? <clears throat> All right? Uh, now, like I said, this is... Uh, this is going to take a little while, and and it's going to be hard on your hands. <clears throat> now... You can you can certainly speed this up by by going to the next level, and that's by making a adding a bow to your spindle fire. And uh, the way you do that is you'll you can take and remember with your with when you're doing this the spindle that you're using, and the fireboard both need to be dry softwoods, okay. Uh, with the bow fire, you're you're going to do basically the same thing, except uh, you're going to also uh, have a cap that is going to be have an, uh, an indentation in it, much like the one that you have for the fireboard. So both ends of your your spindle be uh, slightly rounded, and there'll be indentations in the fireboard and in the cap that you're going to be using to hold the top of the spindle in place. Then you're going to take uh, uh, a green sapling. Uh, that's probably going to be about twice the length of your spindle. Uh, Say so your spindle's is about uh, a foot, 18 inches, something like that. It's not going to need to be as long for a bow fire as it is uh, for a, a friction spindle because you're not going to have to depend on your hands moving down the length of it and keeping it in touch, keeping it in contact with the, the thing you're going to be using, the cap to hold it in place, and then the the bow is going to stay right at the same point. <clears throat> and what you'll do then is you'll take that, kind of make it into a shape like uh, the bow, a bow and arrow, then you'll use uh, something uh, like a shoelace, uh, a thin piece of rope, uh, something that you can use to attach, uh, both, attach it to both ends of a sapling. So you now have like a bow. <clears throat> and then you'll take the, the bow part and you'll wrap it once around the spindle. Okay? It'll go around the spindle one time. Then you'll hold the bow in one hand, I hold it in my strong hand. I'm right-handed, so i hold it in my right hand. And I hold the bow in my right hand, and I hold the cap pressing down on top of the spindle, pressing the spindle into the fireboard with the other. Now, the bow, uh, i hold it close to one end. Now, you don't hold it in the middle, because then it wants, to try and, it wants to try and bend toward what you're doing, instead of running it back and forth. And you'll have to experiment to find the right tension, the best tension uh, on the string for your bow. And then what you're going to do is you're going to move it back and forth, almost like you were playing a violin. You're going to move it rapidly back and forth, okay? And uh, you'll just do this until you get your glowing ember, and then you can tap that glowing ember into your tinder ball, into your tinder cup. Now the uh uh the the different way you can do this is if you have two people. If you've got two people then uh then it can kind of make it a little bit easier. And uh, you actually don't have to have a bow if you've got two folks. What you'll do is you'll have the uh the string or shoelace or twine or light rope, whatever you're using. You'll have that wrapped around the spindle a couple of times. Then one person will be sitting there with their, like I have, I keep my left foot on the fireboard. I'm usually kneeling down on my right knee, left foot on the fireboard, left hand on the spindle cap, and then my right hand was would, would be holding the bow. Now, if there's two people. The only thing that's going to be different is uh, one person will be sitting there with their, one foot on the fire plate and uh, holding the cap onto the spindle, keep it keep the spindle into contact with the fire plate, and then the other person will wrap the uh, light rope string, shoelaces, whatever around the stick a couple of times, and they'll have one end in each hand, and they'll be pulling with the left hand and uh, and moving the right hand forward and pulling back with the right hand, moving the left hand forward. We're just doing that back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Until you've created enough friction uh that you get a glowing ember. Okay? Uh so that is uh, that is the two person uh method of doing it. Now <clears throat> you can also make a fire plow. Uh, this is This this one takes a little bit of work. Uh, I think it takes a little more work than the bow drill. But once again, it, you can do it. And, uh, and there are plenty of natives. Uh, this is the way that they start their fire uh, all the time. They can uh, start a fire up uh, really quick. And so can you if you practice it. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to get
0: uh,
2: your fire board. But in this case, instead of having a a round indiction in it to fit the end of your spindle, you're going to line. This is for a fire plow. You're going to cut a straight line that is just uh, just a tiny, tiny bit uh, uh, larger than the end of the spindle that you're going to be using. Uh, and your spindle in this case should probably be of uh, a little bit harder wood than the fireboard, if you can if you can manage to do that. Now what you'll do with this is you'll cut the the plow in the fireboard. You're going to be holding the stick at about like a 45 degree angle. Pressure. Uh, the way I do that is I put my left hand down near the tip of it. And I hold my right hand, uh, you know, a little bit farther back from the tip. And you're going to be applying pressure as you're moving it back and forth, in a, like in a scraping motion. Uh, as you do this, uh, there's going to be little tiny particles that you're going to be pushing, that you'll keep pushing ahead of you.
0: And uh,
2: as the temperature, now, you can't you can't ever stop. when you know, Once you start doing this, you can't, really can't stop until you get uh, the ember. On, you have to start all over again. But what you're going to be doing is you're going to be applying friction. You're going to be pushing it back and forth, back and forth, until you've created enough friction that uh, you end up pushing a little ember out of the end of the fireboard into the... Uh, into the pile of particles of uh... wood that you have scraped out already which are going to be landing into your tinder cup, into your tinder bowl so you'll end up pushing the ember uh, right out of the plow into the other particles of the dust that you scraped out and that's all going to land in your uh, your little tinder cup and uh... And then you'll do the same thing that you did with the other one once you have that little ember going, you'll start off just very gently blowing and then you'll start to cupping it and pressing the sides together a little bit more a little bit more until you have a nice glowing ember gently blowing on it and then uh you can keep blowing on it, keep expanding the ember until it gains enough uh enough of a size that you get an open flame to start out on it. Uh, like I said, this is, it's a tricky, uh, way to do it, but it can be done. Uh, you can make a, uh, fire drill. Uh, I'm not going to go into this because it really need a little bit of a picture, uh, for this. But you can make a pump fire drill, uh, now, something like a pump fire drill, I would, uh, you'd want to make it, uh, you'd want to make it and then kind of keep it on you, because it takes a lot of work to make it. And, uh, like I said, you'd want to kind of, once you've made it, you don't want to throw it away, because it takes a while to make it, but it, it will help make a fire quickly, even with one person without, uh, with less effort than some of the, the other methods. <clears throat> uh the
0: uh, uh the
2: next way I would tell you is uh no we already i think we already talked about flint and steel but uh I'll go over that again can <clears throat> uh you can take the flint strikers, or make like a like a kind of like a flint alloy of the strikers that they make. You can keep those. Uh, uh, I keep those in my bags, uh, in vehicles. I, I just got a lot of them. They were cheap, uh, and I have them all over. You can get those. You can get the uh, the magnesium blocks. Are uh, kind of work the same way. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, with the uh, with the flint strikers, now you can actually uh, you can actually use regular flint rocks, chert flint, and any kind of uh, steel that you can get your hand on. Uh, I believe that we use the. Uh, the Boy Scout pocket knife with the blades closed to strike against the uh, flint rock uh, when I was younger. And you're just going to hold the flint. Uh, you'll Usually, you, if you've got a flint rock, you'll break it so that you've got an exposed edge, like an exposed sharp edge. Then you'll take the closed pocket knife with the metal part, uh, with the metal back of the blade sticking out and you'll bring the pocket knife down in a short, sharp arc, contact the edge of the flint like you're striking it, but you're you're barely you're barely hitting it. You're striking it a glancing blow, and you'll keep doing that. And every time you do it, you will be uh, snapping uh, sparks off of the flint. <clears throat> Now, if you're familiar with uh, the flintlock rifles, uh, flintlock muskets, it's exactly what they did, right? What they did is they had a metal hammer. You would cock back. It would be under pressure of a spring. And the very end of the hammer would be a small vice. And you would take a piece of flint well, the flint had to be worked. You'd have to take it and break it and and work it so that you had the right size, and then that uh, the edges were prepared correctly. And uh, you know they had a had a kind of a uh, you know big factory business doing this of a bunch of folks uh, sitting around breaking the flint up, making it into the right sizes so it could be used in the rifles. that would be held in the end of the hammer, you know, like in a small vise. You would caulk it back to full caulk, and then when you released it,
1: it would go forward
2: onto a piece of metal that was L-shaped. And the L-shaped piece, you know, it's a flat, uh, you know, kind of a wide piece of metal, about a Oh, an inch to three quarters of an inch wide, and it's shaped like an L, and then down at the bottom of the baseline of the L, where the end of the L is, it would be attached to uh, the uh, frizz and the powder, a little pan that carried the powder. And what happened was whenever the hammer came forward, it would strike the metal at an angle, and as it was coming down and striking it, it was also pushing it away. It pushed it away, and that exposed uh, an open depression that was filled with powder, with uh, loose gunpowder. That loose gunpowder was connected to the the main charge in the uh, the barrel of the rifle by a tiny hole. So. <clears throat> When you talk about priming a rifle, that's what they would do. They would open up the frizzen pan, they would pour loose powder in, and ensure that some of it went into the little hole that goes down into the base, into the uh, the bore of the rifle. Then they would close the pan. Now you would do this after you had uh, uh, after you had loaded in your loose powder and your wadding and your ball and stuff. Then you would pop open the the uh, frizzen, pour in the primer, shut it. Pull the camera back to a full cock, squeeze the trigger. the hammer goes forward, hits the uh, hits the plate in front of it, and that causes the flint to run down it at an angle, striking off a whole bunch of sparks and as it's running down it, it's also opened up the that and that ignites that uh, loose gunpowder in there that loose gunpowder gun goes through the the hole into the Barrel with a main charge, and that ignites the main charge, which propels the projectile out. That's how the flint lock works. <clears throat> uh, you can do the same thing with the piece of raw flint and your pocket knife, or any kind of a piece of metal that you can find. <clears throat> you can do the same thing by striking the sparks. Once again, you're going to have to practice doing it, so that you can regularly strike off a nice stream of sparks uh, every time you do it. And you're going to have to make sure that uh, all of these sparks are being captured in your tinder ball that you've made. Uh, like I said, I can't stress enough the importance of, of doing the work of preparing your, uh, your tinder ball before you try anything else, any, any method to light the fire, it's nothing's going to work until you have the tinder the ball ready. Okay? All right. So you've got the flint and steel, uh, the bow drill, the hand spindle, uh, the hand pump drill. Uh, you've got the matches. You've got the lighter. <clears throat> and uh, one of the other things that you can use that you can... Uh, usually find in different uh, places, or you, you may have yourself. Are you can use a magnifying glass or uh, glass lenses to start a fire. So if you've got reading glasses, those will work. And the way that you'll do this is, and most of most of the most of you've tried uh, at some point in your life have tried this to get the sun to shine through the lenses, you know, and form a hot spot and cause something to smoke or catch on fire, okay, as I said, you'll prepare your tinder. Make sure that you've got the tinder right to catch this, and you'll take those glasses. You'll let the sun come through the glasses, and then you will move the lens either closer to your tinder or farther away. What you're trying to do is to get that optimum point, and the way that you'll find it
0: is, you will find its
2: uh, whenever you move those glasses closer to the the little dot that 's shining through the glasses when you have your when you have the glasses set up correctly between the tinder and the sun, if you move it close to it and you see the dot getting bigger, then you stop you start moving it back away from it as you 're moving it back away from it you 'll reach a point where it 'll stop getting smaller and it'll start getting bigger again, then you move it back again until you find that point where it has reached the smallest point it will make, all right? And that is going to be your focal length for the fire. When it has made the smallest dot it can make, that's going to be the distance that you you keep holding it at until you can start your ember with it. Now, it'll, it'll take a little while for you to do it, and you'll need to uh, focus the dot, on the tinder that you're trying to get started in your, in your tinder ball that you pre-prepared. You'll focus it on there until you get to smoking, until you can finally see a little red ember, and you'll keep it on there. You'll keep it on there as you're gently, very gently, just blowing uh, additional oxygen uh, onto the, the ember, and you're keeping the smoke, the actual smoke, you're keeping the smoke away uh, from... Uh, either blocking out, you want the smoke to smother the the ember out. You want to keep the smoke away, add fresh oxygen, and you don't want the smoke to get between the uh, between the glasses and where the ember is hitting, where the uh, where the magnified light is hitting the ember. Because if you do, it'll lose its power by hitting the small particles in the smoke. So you're gently blowing until you've created a a large enough ember, and then you continue to blow until that ember finally ignites, and you get an open flame. And then once again, you set that down where you're going to have your fire, because you've already prepared the place for your fire, too. You've already gotten a place ready for where you're going to have your fire. Either you've actually made a little formal thing out of rocks or whatever. You just made sure that you're not going to put it somewhere where it is going to be in danger, uh, or where you're going, where you're in danger of uh, starting uh, a fire that's out of control, or where your tinder ball is going to roll over and, and fall and break apart or something, you're going to have you've planned it out so you have a place to put it. You'll put your your timber your tinder ball down with the glowing flame, and you'll start adding the little uh, pencil-thick uh, pieces to it to get the fire started. That's your your glasses or magnifying glass method now uh, can also use uh, uh, this is one that I have not tried uh, lately Uh, we tried it once as a group a couple of years ago, but you can also use parabolic glass uh, to reflect the sun and concentrate the sun. And uh, parabolic glass is like uh, like what you would get out of the old headlights, you know, the old curved headlights. And you can
0: use... Uh,
2: a water filled plastic bottle as well. Which certainly is going to take a little practice to get uh to get used to doing that correctly. And you'll have to have clear plastic and
0: clear water
2: in the bottle when you're doing it. Okay. Uh If you have, uh, your vehicle or a flashlight, anything that has batteries in it, uh, if you can, uh, uh, if you can rig up, if you can get a couple of pieces of wire, uh, and you get (coughs) uh, some very, very fine wire or, uh. Uh, if you have, uh, uh, some steel wool and some wire, then you can make a fire that way using electricity, a fire. And, uh, you can certainly do it, uh, if you have a car battery, you can certainly do it uh, a lot easier, the larger the battery,
0: the
2: easier it is to, to get the heat and the, the larger diameter wire you can use, uh. The way that you would do it is you would take, uh, uh, if you're using steel wool, uh, and some people keep steel wool in their kits just for this just for this exact reason, uh, you can take a small uh, chunk of the steel wool and kind of uh, roll it into kind of like a, a little bundle. Then you can take your battery, and you can take, it can be a nine volts, it can be a a C battery. Uh, I'm not sure if, if one of the single A's would do it. It might, but it, it would take some very fine wires. Anyway, you'll take the uh, the wires or wire and you'll have to make sure that you get a charge from both sides. Now, if you only have like a little tiny piece of wire, I suppose you could hold your or put your, uh, your steel wool like uh, on the flat negative side and then run your uh, a small piece of wire from the positive side over to the steel wool that you are keeping in between the end of the wire and the battery. Touch it. And the current, uh, once you have it in direct contact, will be it will be causing a direct short, which will cause the steel wool to start glowing. And that is going to be then your ember that you will transfer to the tinder and uh, it's, uh, this isn't going to work without steel wool. So you'd have to make sure that you had your steel wool with you. Now, if you had a car battery, it'd be a little bit, uh, easier to do because you could use, uh, you know, a, a larger gauge wire and, uh, what you'd be what would be trying to do then is uh, to run the wire from one pole of the battery uh and then another wire from the other pole and then use something uh, in between the two that was going to burn uh that was thinner than the two wires that you were uh that you were using and you connect them together, that's where your tinder would be, and you would use that, uh, uh, the heat that's generated by the direct sort to make your fire. Now, uh, there there are plenty of other ways that uh, you can start fire. You can Google this, the the fire starting, and uh, you'll see a a lot of... uh, uh, a lot of different ways than uh, that you can use uh, objects to make fires uh, there is uh, balloons and condoms that uh, you can take and you can fill with water and uh, you try and make balloon or the condom you try to make it as spherical as possible because what you want to do is to create as close as to an exact sphere as you can Uh, then, then what you're going to do is you're going to, uh, squeeze the balloon in such a way that you're making, uh, you're making a shape that is going to focus the light, uh, as it's coming through the water, okay? Uh. This is something you'll certainly would have to take a lot of practice. Uh, same thing with ice. If you're somewhere uh, where you can find ice that uh, uh, that has uh, some nice, clear uh, nice clear ice where the, the sun can pass through it, obviously if it's dirty ice or if there's a lot of oxygen uh, bubbles in it, it's not going to work. But you'd form the, the ice. You'd break out a piece of the ice out and try and form it uh, into a lens shape, uh, you know, you could use your fingers to slowly melt the ice as you're rubbing in a circular pattern to find to form it into like the shape of a lens. I mean, you would use it uh, the same way you would use a magnifying glass or a pair of glasses. Uh, like I said, though, the ice has to be clear. Uh, it can't be any, it can't be cloudy or anything like that. Uh, Probably one of the best ways to do this would be to, if you're somewhere where it's cold, would be to make it yourself. Make the ice yourself. Take some good, clean uh, water, and then you'll pour it into uh, pour it into some kind of container container that you've made yourself, like a little uh, piece of plastic that you have that you have suspended in such a in in such a way. That you'll have, uh, you know, a rounded shape on one side of it, and uh, and then let it freeze. All right. Uh, there is the Coke can and chocolate bar method, and this just happens to be things that you might you might actually have on you or something, uh, you know, out camping or stuff some, or something like that. Uh, what uh, What you would do with this is you're going to take the, and you know, you look at the bottom of the soda can, and it's got that indented, uh, almost like a parabolic curve indented on the bottom. Then you're going to take the chocolate from the chocolate bar, and you're going to start rubbing it on the bottom of the can. And you're going to do this because the chocolate is going to be Uh, your polishing medium, okay? You're going to take the chocolate, you're going to to take a little piece of cloth, with the chocolate on it, and you're going to rub the bottom of the can until you've got that aluminum so shiny that it's like a mirror. Uh, You can use paste. It doesn't work quite as well because the toothpaste has actually kind of like a higher grit in it, but you can use it. Uh, after you polish the bottom of the can so that it's mirror shiny, uh, basically you just you have the same kind of thing which is a parabolic mirror, and uh, the sunlight will reflect off the bottom of the can, forming a single focal point. And uh, you'll point the bottom of the can towards the sun, and you'll have uh, uh, you'll end up with a with a light. Uh, that you can then focus directly at the tinder.
0: And uh,
2: the tinder is going to be about an inch from the reflecting light's focal point. Now, after a few seconds uh, or more, depending on how long it takes you to, how well you've done your polishing job and how long it takes you to find the right angle, uh, it should be just like the magnifying glass. Uh, You should be able to, and you'll have to suspend the tinder, you know, at that center point right there. Uh, but there are there are a lot of ways that you can actually start fire. So so the only thing I would tell you, let me tell you two things, the two major things is one practice laying the fire. The lay the, the the way that you lay the fire is going to determine uh, your ability to get fire. You know. The way that you are going to lay the fire is going to it's going to determine if your fire makes it or not. All right, and that includes building your tinder cup. So practice building your tinder cup. So that's going to be that's a make or break part of this. And second, thing I'll tell you is that all of these methods require practice to make them work. The flame steel one, I've got that to me for me that's it's really just as fast as a match or a lighter, okay, uh, because I've done that one so often. Uh, the uh, the hand drill and bow drill less often uh, because they take a lot longer. It takes longer to make. Uh, it takes more work to get the ember. So, uh, but I still do practice it every now and then because I want to make sure that I Make sure that I don't forget how to produce an ember with it. But the only way that this that you're going to get this to work is by practicing it. Now you see these folks on these survival shows. I mean, I've seen them several times before, where the uh, uh, where the folks are supposed to be uh, uh, they're supposed to be experts but they can't start a fire with a simple bow drill. It doesn't seem very expert to me
0: because
2: you can figure out a way to make it work. Uh, it's like I said, it's gonna. It, it can certainly be difficult, but you can figure out a way to make it work. And especially these guys, like one of the guys I just recently saw do, do this and who failed at it, they were on a beach, which is like the perfect place to find uh, spindles, and uh, and fire boards and everything else. Uh, But they apparently weren't as expert as they had indicated they were because I think it took them four or five days to start the fire. Uh, Fire is one of those things that, uh, if you're in a survival situation, that should be right up at the top of your list. Fire and finding good, safe, clean uh, water to drink. And you're going to need the fire to purify the water. So, fire should be right up at the top of your list uh, in a survival situation. I don't care if you're in the desert uh, or you're in the Alps. Uh, fire is going to be one of the things that you need right off the bat. All right? So, make sure that you are, uh, number one, that you're putting away the easy things to use to make the fire. That you've got plenty of uh, of the uh, uh, little bitane lighters. Plenty of matches stored away, plenty of butane lighters, uh, all that stuff, and uh, and then spend a little time uh, working with your flint and steel. Uh, some weekend, just uh, tell yourself, okay, I'm gonna on Saturday. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna gather up uh, some stuff, and uh, you're gonna gather up several different types of. Wood for the spindle, several types of wood for the uh uh fire plate fireboard and uh so it's different types of wood for the bow and for the cap and uh you're going to make yourself a fire using that method okay uh you can go to uh Google and uh, I'm sure that they'll have a uh how to start a uh bow drill fire video uh they've gotta have it and uh and use that as your guide, okay? But practice doing it now so that if you ever have to do it, you're not having to learn how to do it, you're just having to do it, okay? Uh all right. Uh the uh one of the things that we we wanted to talk about uh, uh last time was Storing your bulk of grain, and that is, uh, you know, when you're buying grain, you want to, whether no matter what it is, uh, rice, uh, cracked wheat, hard wheat, uh, oats, whatever it is, you want to buy it in bulk so that you get a good price on it, and then you want to be able to store it safely so that insects uh, and uh, vermin can't get to it. And the best way to do this is you can buy it in bulk, and you can put it in, uh, like, the 5-gallon or 50-gallon. You know, if you, if you want to store a lot of it, you can certainly get the uh, those big 50-gallon uh, food-grade either metal or plastic containers. You can buy the Mylar bags that will fit those, too. Uh, the, uh, and then... Uh you want to make sure that it stays dry that's uh, by putting the desiccants in it and
0: uh
2: that it that it uh, that it has uh, an unbreathable atmosphere in it uh, to keep vermin out uh, one of the best ways you can do that is you can uh uh, you can use dry ice, you know, you get your, get your, uh, uh, your bucktail set up with a dry, so put the dry ice in it, uh, for a five gallon bucket, you can put a, like a quarter pound of dry ice in the bottom of the five gallon bucket, uh, you can then fill the pail three quarters full of wheat and then set the lid on the top, now you don't seal it yet,
0: uh.
2: After about two hours, when you're pretty sure that all the dry ice uh, has exchanged into a gas, then you can seal the pail. Now, that re- that replaces all of the oxygen uh, inside with CO2. Now, bugs can't live in that, but it also has to be airtight, too, right? <clears throat> so, uh, make sure that you are, and I told you guys before, too, that, Don't let not knowing how to do this stop you from doing it, okay? Uh, And don't let not having all of the equipment or all of the materials stop you from doing it. Uh, At the very very end of the day, go get some five-gallon food-grade buckets from Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, Take those, sew those to the top with uh, with your dry grain, put it back on, put the top back on, tap them into place and lock them, and put that in your storage bin, okay? Make sure you put the dates on of when you uh, canned that particular one up. Uh, you can certainly go the full wrap by putting the five-gallon buckets, uh, putting the liners in, putting your... Uh, uh, grain inside then putting the CO2 on the top and sealing it up making sure that uh you've left some room for the uh for the air to escape out of there and then lock that down tight you can certainly do that but don't let that don't let not having the bags keep you from going getting the grain and putting it away all right <clears throat> because uh it's one of the least expensive things to get and to store, uh, is the grain, all right, and you can buy, uh, uh, rice, and you can buy rice in a 50-pound sack, you can, I'm sure that, uh, if you're close to one of the places, you could buy a truckload of it, uh, you know, even loosen your truckload, or bring your own containers, and they would, uh, fill them up and weigh them for you, uh, and if you have some way to do that that's perfect and if you have some way to uh uh to can up uh fifty gallon cans seal those up that would be perfect uh, and we also wanted to talk about uh medicine and i'm just i'm gonna i'm going to limit it right now to uh uh biotics. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about buying antibiotics from the pet stores. Okay? Because for you to go and get an antibiotic from the doctor, you'd have to write your prescription. And then your insurance company is going to want to know, why do you need these antibiotics? And we're not paying for them. A lot of times now, even if you had a doctor who would write your prescription for them, uh, I've certainly seen the uh, the pharmacies not want to allow you to get something that your insurance wasn't paying for because they don't want you to pay cash for it. Uh, so so what are you going to do? Uh, you don't want to go in and fake an illness. Uh, I guess you could, but uh, here's a, here is an alternative. The antibiotics that we take as humans uh, are also the same antibiotics that are prescribed for fish. The difference is when you go to the pet store, they don't make you get a prescription for the exact same antibiotics. Now, before we go any further with this, uh, let me make sure you understand that you, you... you guys out there listening, you are the ones that are 100% responsible for anything you're doing with any of the information I'm giving you. Okay? There's nothing I can do from my end to stop you from doing something or make you do it right or or whatever, all right? And uh, and I'm also not going to go over any kind of a dosage uh, with this because I'm not a doctor. So I'm just going to tell you what the what these medications are, and then you can figure out what you need to do about it. Now, here's the other thing I'll tell you about the antibiotics too: is that uh, antibiotics, one one type of antibiotic, isn't a cure-all for everything. The, they they make antibiotics to specifically different maladies. So you need to make sure you're taking the correct antibiotic. The, to, for the appropriate uh, in the appropriate dosage to target a specific malady. All right, but if you go to the pet store, uh, and the other thing is, don't be going. Don't if you get sick, don't be going to the pet store and getting antibiotics and treating yourself. Okay. Uh, go to the doctor, find out what's really wrong with you, and then get the prescription that way. Uh, these antibiotics are to be used only in uh, only in a grid down into the world type situation uh, where you have no other choices. That's that's the information that I'm giving you. All right. Uh, the if you go to the fish store. The, they're going to have the fish antibiotics and, they're, and they were really cheap until they found out people were buying them and stocking up on them for their use at the end of the world situation so they've kind of gone up quite a bit now but they're still uh, less expensive usually than prescriptions if you go to the store the fish store and you see the name Fish Mox Fish M-O-X that's uh, going to be amoxicillin in the 250 milligram base, okay? fish mox, that's amoxicillin, In the 250 milligram base. Fish mox forte is the amoxicillin in 500 milligram dosage. Fish flex is keflex, 250 milligram dosage of uh, keflex. Fish flex forte is the keflex in the five hundred milligram dosage. Fish zole is the metronidazole metronidazole two hundred and fifty milligram and fish Pen is fish is uh, penicillin two hundred and fifty milligram and fish pin forte is penicillin in five hundred milligram dosage. Okay, so that's the uh, that's the the uh, the fish names for the uh, human
1: antibiotics. <clears throat> Scout, now you have a second here. Yeah, what you got? Uh, one of the things that that uh, will really help people when they're dealing with these uh, animal medications that you find is if they go to the local used bookstore and hunt around for a copy of something called a PDR. It's called a physician's desk reference. uh and It's a reference book on drugs. It has information on what the, the stuff is good for, dosing and identifying different drugs. It's a handy reference for that. And if you happen to go buy, say, a bottle of Fishmocks, if you look at the pill, it'll have a, a company name and a number on there. And you can go to the identification section and look up that company name and number, and it will assure you that it is, in fact, the same stuff that they prescribe for people. And it gives information on how much would be necessary for particular situations or particular diseases and gives you an idea of what diseases a particular drug would be good for treating. And you can pick up a used PDR uh, for three or four bucks in your local used bookstore over in the right. reference section. You have a hard time getting rid of them. And it's one of the handiest things you can have around.
2: Yeah, I would certainly. We're going to have a uh, we're
1: going to have a whole
2: show on exactly what you're talking about. And that is the uh, reference material because I've been stockpiling it for quite a while and going through different uh, uh, different uh, uh, books and stuff so that we could uh, so that I I had. A good way of trying to figure out because I'm not a doctor. A good way of trying to figure out what, uh, and I won't have any interest in that service there to use my my web MD. <laughs> uh, but uh, but that is a good book. There are a lot of other ones that you can get also. Now the only, the other warning that uh, that I would give folks is when you're taking antibiotics, you've got your you need to take them the way. They are meant to be taken, and uh, that includes uh, uh, you know taking them all the way through their cycle, so that uh, you have killed off the bug. Because uh, antibiotics are one of the uh, one of the greatest success stories in modern medicine, but because of misuse and abuse of them uh, they are they're rapidly becoming uh ineffective. What we're doing is we're breeding the we're breeding the uh the super bugs because of the improper techniques of uh of taking them and use and abuse them so that uh in in fifteen to twenty years uh there's not going to be not gonna be any good anything to take because uh, everything everything is gonna be resistant uh all the diseases are gonna be resistant to antibiotics so uh in fifteen to twenty years when you when you go to the hospital to have an operation or something the thing that's gonna kill you is not any of the operation it's gonna be It's going to be some little routine infection, some little bug that's going to kill you because antibiotics are no longer going to work, right? (laughs) Okay. Uh, As with any uh, information about medicine or anything else, uh, I highly suggest that you do your own research. That You talk to medical professionals
0: uh, and that
2: if you have something wrong with you, you go to the doctor. All right? Go to the doctor and get them to or check you out and find out what's wrong. Okay. Uh I want to uh I want to finish up tonight with talking about uh uh the last eleven days we've been running a I'm gonna do a quick AR on the classes, running a uh a five day precision rifle course and then a two day stalking and camouflage course here at Battle Road USA and uh uh this was uh, a really great week. We had uh, a lot of uh, great instruction. We did a lot of shooting uh, at distance for the rifle course and uh and it, it worked out really well. The uh, uh the precision rifle course uh, had us shooting at uh uh, At targets up to eight hundred and fifty uh meters and uh and uh, all of the shooters did a great job John uh had some really great instruction
0: uh,
2: and one of the things that we added in this time was a section on barricades We added in a section on. On shooting through barricades, and I wanted just to tell you a little bit about uh about what I learned about the section on glass and uh, that is that the shooting through glass can be a little bit tricky, and you'll need to pay attention to how you're doing it that is because um, uh, usually when you're shooting through glass. Your it's something it's usually uh, uh, mostly a case like for law enforcement you know they're shooting uh, through glass at uh, you know at somebody that's uh, taking a hostage or something like that and careful because your bullet when you fire a a bullet from a rifle it goes through several stages and uh, the first stage is called nutation, and in mutation it's kind of comparable to uh you know when you've got a uh, a top and you zip that uh zip the the string off the top real fast and the top is really wobbly at first It's kind of wobbling back and forth until it kind of slows down just a little and then it'll go into that that good steady spin. Well, your bullet does the same thing. As the bullet is leaving the barrel, it's hitting the rifling and the rifling is imparting uh, a spin to the bullet to help stabilize its flight. And it does. And it does a great job of it. However, when it... First leaves the barrel, and that could be anywhere from uh, uh, from 75 to like 100 uh, 150 yards or more. There's that uh, the area before that is where the bullet is in mutation up to 100 yards. That means it hasn't stopped uh, the back and forth movement of it. Uh, it hasn't gone into a uh, a steady spin yet. The next section will be called sleep. Your bullet first acts, the drill in nutation, the the kind of a yaw going on it back and forth. Then it goes into sleep. And you want to make sure uh, that if you're firing through glass or something, uh, that if you can't get your target up near the glass, right up against the glass, that you need to move back so that your bullet is entered its sleep period before it hits the glass. Uh, that's because when the bullet is in mutation, even something thin like a glass window pane can cause it to uh, to deviate uh, even greatly, kind of from uh, from its point of impact. We had uh, single pane glass windows, uh, and the thick automotive glass. and What we did is we set them up at 5, 10, and 15 foot of distance between the target and the glass. And we had the shooters shooting through the glass at uh, 50, 100, and 200 yards. And if you look at uh, one of the pictures that uh, is on the slideshow uh, for the uh, for the show, there's a slide show on the show page. Uh, you'll see one of them marked uh, five feet. Uh, I believe it's five feet and 50 feet or five feet and around 100 feet. I don't remember which slide I put up there. Uh, regardless, there's a shot that was taken, past, which was only five feet from the target
0: and uh,
2: the target was the bridge of the nose at that spot but, uh, on, a, on a line from uh, between the center of the two eyes where it intersects uh, the, the nose line. That was the point of aim. The, uh, the point of impact was actually uh, close to three inches or more off to the left. Uh, it was just to the outside of the eyebrow of the, target, the target's face. And on top of that, the bullet was exactly flat. Uh, The bullet had come in in mutation
0: uh, in a yaw.
2: The bullet had struck the window glass, and when it did, in just five feet, it caused it to move a little over three inches and to impact sideways.
0: That is a, uh,
2: that's a lot of deviation, uh, and, uh, and it would have been more if the target would have been back, uh, you know, 10 or 15 feet. It would have been, it would have been a miss, I'm sure, at, uh, at either the 10 or 15 foot mark because the angle of the deviation was so great. <clears throat> so that tells you that, uh, and then, uh. And then we had, uh, certain, we had different types of ammunition we were using as well. Uh, we were using uh, various full metal jackets on the window glass at different distances, and uh, we were using some nice expensive uh, Hornady AMAX, uh, the 168 grain uh, 308 uh, shell. And, uh, and while it was the most accurate round, uh, it also had troubles with fragmentation when hitting the glass. So uh, the uh, the short side of the story, the information gained, would be this, that, uh, that if you're going to be shooting through glass at a target, you need to do... Uh, one of two things: you either need to get the target to come to the window, or you need to move back beyond uh, 200 feet in order to make the shot. Because you want to make sure that your bullet is in sleep uh, before you before you make the shot. All right. Okay. Uh the other course, the stocking and camouflage course was a great course. And uh and we had uh a couple of hours of classroom, then went straight into uh the practical application. First thing we did was have the students uh build uh their concealed positions and uh they just took about, uh, oh, an hour and a half to build their concealed position, and it was approximately 150 meters away from the observation point. And then
0: uh, then we
2: brought in the observer to uh, walk uh, a spotter onto the positions, and uh, and I believe that uh, we got just about everybody. What we did is we'd give them a – they were in their concealed positions, and then they would have uh, two blank rounds. And uh, whenever uh, whenever I would uh, uh, I would go from position to position, and I'd get about a, oh, 30, 40 feet away, and I'd tell them to take their shot if he hadn't seen them already, because he picked out a couple of the guys uh, before they even took their shots. They would take a shot at him, and then with the blanks. And then I'd walk to within 10 feet, and he would look again. If he couldn't see them, then he had asked them to identify a letter that was on an 8-by-10 uh, sheet of paper. Identify a letter he was holding up to make sure that they could actually see him from their position. Once they identified it, then uh, they would fire a second shot. And if he still couldn't find them after that, he'd hold up another letter. They would identified that, and then they had made it. I mean, they made their hide good enough that they could take two shots. And even with me standing in within five feet of the person's hide, couldn't be identified, okay? The uh, next uh, uh, problem was a stalking to your hide position,
0: and then uh, the same
2: thing with firing the shots. And we started off oh, about 250, 300
0: uh, meters away
2: from the uh, observer's position, they would have to stalk up to it to where they could get a good clean shot, uh, whether that was from, you know, 200 uh, meters or 50 meters, whatever. In between, they stalked up to where they could good, get a good clean shot, take the shot, and it would go through the same thing.
0: Now, if they were seen
2: before that, they would have to reset. I mean, they'd have to get up, walk back uh, to the beginning, and start their stalk over. And that was also a four-point loss out of their total of 20 points you have to make 16 points in order to pass this phase. <clears throat> the next day, we repeated this uh, with three stalks and uh, on three different uh, lanes, three different stalking lanes. The last two were live fire stalks. And that meant that uh, they would stalk up to the position where they would take their shot. I'd go to 10 feet, they'd try and find them. Go to 5 feet, try and find them. And, uh, once, and if they couldn't be found... Then they would uh, they would leave their rifle at that position and at the end of this problem, they would go back to that point. They'd have one live round that we'd give them, and they'd need to make a shot on the target, which would be a steel plate that I'd been sitting in front in front of while I was trying to catch them. They'd have to hit the target from that position. And they did two of those, and that finished up the course, and uh, along as well with a a lot of work on. Uh, on camouflage, on movement and stuff like that. All right guys, we're at the end of the uh end of the show for tonight. I wanna to thank everybody for uh for listening. And uh, once again if you got anything that you uh, wanna hear, any show that you wanna any subject that you wanna see on the show, any guest, anything like that, uh just uh, send me an email or uh or a uh or a message or anything like that and I'll be glad to uh do my best to get that show topic on for you. All right, we'll see you guys again uh, next uh, Thursday, uh, 7 p.m. Central. Until then, God bless and uh, keep you
0: all.